Hi, guys. This is Amanda and Filler from Cover Story. We are podcasting from Allenhurst, a little gem by the sea. This is episode seven of Cover Story. If you're joining us for the first time, we are so happy you are here. Cover Story is a podcast about music, in particular cover songs. You can find all of our archive episodes on our website, thecoverstorypodcast.com. For our regular listeners, we heartily welcome you back. As you may have noticed, we took a little hiatus. My boys and I took an impromptu jaunt down to the most magical place on earth, Disney World. We were there for a few days and it was so dope. My Orlando jet lag has ever so slightly subsided. And in my absence from their porch, Filler and Jenny did their own late night podcast, though they forgot to hit record. Ooh la la. I am joined, <laughs> as always, on our porch studio by my co-host Filler and his lovely wife Jenny. You may not know this, but back in the day, Filler used to be a bartender. Well, he has tended up some bar this evening for me. I am drinking the most delicious drink. It's a French blonde. For those so inclined to shake one, it's equal parts vodka, freshly squeezed grapefruit juice, and elderflower. There is a nice lemon moon floating on top, making me feel warm and happy. Hey, Filler, do you ever have deja vu? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Today's episode, heavens to Betsy, I don't know where to start. On side A, we talk about a classic country melodic narrative entitled Willin. It gets deep into it, as always. And on side B, well, you know what they say, folks. You can take the boy out of Manchester, but you can't take the Manchester out of the boy. If you know us, you know who we're going to be analyzing. If you don't, the band is a band with the most ordinary name, and the song yearns deeply for your attention. And without further ado, Amanda, let's hit the side A, if you please. Willin' is a song written by the guitarist and singer Lowell George in 1970 and was a mainstay of the band Little Feet. The song is about a truck driver in the American Southwest who makes some extra cash smuggling cigarettes and transporting Mexicans illegally across the border. In the liner notes of the 1993 album As Time Goes By, The Very Best of Little Feet, Music journalist John Tobler wrote that Willen quickly became a favorite among American truck drivers, many of whom continue to regard it as the anthem of their profession. Although the band never had a charting signal, this is arguably their best-known song. Linda Ronstead recorded this on her 1975 album, Heart Like a Wheel. While Ronstead is certainly versatile, it's hard to imagine her at the wheel of a rig hauling freight or contraband across state lines. The opening line, in which the narrator describes himself as being warped by the rain, is one of my favorite opening lines of all time. I suppose the song can be viewed as a metaphor for life. And life is about learning how to weather and navigate life's storms. The storms can warp us, and they can drive us. They come and go, and often leave us searching for something or someone. At some point in our lives, if we are lucky enough, we all find our Alice, the one we are looking for in the headlights when we're out there on our own. Life is often referred to as a journey, and we all have our personal Tucson's. We go through our lives via different vehicles, like driving every type of rig that's ever been made. And sometimes we take the shortcuts. We take the back roads so we don't have to get weed. Most of us need something to sustain us through that journey, whether it's weed, whites, or wine. Most importantly, 
Through life's peaks and valleys, we're all willing to pick ourselves up and put one foot in front of the other. Perhaps this metaphor is what inspired Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers to debut their cover of Little Feet's Willing during their five-night residency at the Beacon Theater in May of 2013. Whatever the inspiration, Petty was no stranger to themes of journeys and traveling. In a review of Tom Petty's last solo album, Highway Companion, which was released in 2006, Sven Phillips of Glide Magazine writes, Petty revisits the myth of the open road as if to wrestle one more time with an ancient metaphor. Once eagerly riding into the great wide open, Petty's characters are now drifting down the highway, lost in a world of uncertainty. Most songs on Highway Companion are moody and down-tempo, sparse, and minimal in arrangement. The powerful Saving Grace opens with a hard-edged Bo Diddley blues and sums up the overall sentiment. And it's hard to say who you are these days, but you run on anyway. Gorgeously stripped to just his voice and his guitar, Square One is Petty's most personal song ever, and it's hard not to think of Johnny Cash's American recordings. Just like the man in black, Petty was moving toward a sparse sonic truth, sounding utterly alone, a bit world-weary and deeply human. For a band that arrived in the 1970s, the Heartbreakers have always harked back to the 1960s, openly emulating the Birds, Bob Dylan, the band, the Rolling Stones, the Who, and the Grateful Dead. But Petty had a songwriting persona of his own, one that suited his scraggly voice. Most of his narrators are working-class non-heroes, barely getting by, and used to being scorned or ignored, but are also very stubborn. Petty's crawling voice and easy pacing was part of his allure. Though his calm, clear-eyed delivery suggests a series of ellipses, he was perfectly at ease with his pacing. Shortly after Petty's untimely and heartbreaking death on October 2, 2017, music critic Mikhail Wood wrote a beautiful article titled, Why Losing Tom Petty Feels Like Losing a Piece of Ourselves. Wood writes in his article that the singer, guitarist, and songwriter with his longtime backing band, The Heartbreakers, was perhaps the quintessential American rock star with an iconic shades and long hair look, a nasal voice gloriously unsuited to any other genre, and a seemingly bottomless bag of tunes that felt as though he'd written them to soundtrack the specifics of your life. Bummed and also a little angry about a breakup? Cue up Don't Do Me Like That, or You Got Lucky. Eager but also slightly scared to set out on a new adventure? Try Into the Great Wide Open or Running Down a Dream. Petty even had a song, a great one, from his stripped-down 1994 solo album Wildflowers, about how hard it is to explain your feelings to another person, despite the fact that that's precisely what his music did for a diverse audience that spanned generations and encompassed folks from various walks of life. In his typical plain-spoken fashion, he called the tune, You Don't Know How It Feels. Two of his songs that hit home the most to me are Time to Move On and It'll All Work Out. Just super simple lyrics that provided me with validation and great comfort during times I needed the most. Born and raised in Florida, where he started out with the band Mudcrutch, Petty didn't take long to hit the stride after he moved to Los Angeles in the mid-1970s and relaunched Mudcrutch as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. The group's self-titled debut, released in 1976, contained two of his most enduring songs in American Girl and Breakdown, both of which showcased his ability to synthesize the music of his influences, from Little Richard to Elvis Presley to The Beatles to Johnny Cash, an original material as catchy as it was emotionally legible. She was an American girl, raised on promises, he sang over a jittery yet irresistible groove. She couldn't help thinking that there was a little more life somewhere else. Who couldn't relate to the hope and the threat of disappointment in lines like those? Three years later, the Heartbreakers found commercial success to match their easy likability with 1979's Damn the Torpedoes, which sold millions and spawned additional rock radio staples like Refugee and Don't Do Me Like That. 
Decades later, Randy Lewis, a music critic and reporter for the Los Angeles Times, interviewed Tom Petty to discuss the 2010 release of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' penultimate album, Mojo. In the interview, Tom Petty explains, The band has kind of matured into something else, he said, more with the air of an impartial observer than you might expect of the man who has fronted the band on and off for 35 years. This is more the way we played for ourselves when the heat's off. This is what it sounds like. And I thought, number one, it could be more fun. And number two, it would just be truer to what we really are at the moment. They're ridiculously a good band. I'm still sometimes awed by them. And why not? If Petty is the quintessential American rock star, the Heartbreakers have emerged over time as arguably the quintessential American rock band, endearingly human and consistently in touch with the fundamentals of rock and roll. The Heartbreakers are the definition of what a real rock and roll band is supposed to be, said Jim Ladd, the veteran rock radio DJ. They started in a garage in Gainesville, Florida, and stuck it out through all the hard times, and they never lost sight of their goal, which was, I think, for them, not to be celebrities, but to be great musicians. They've been playing together since they were teenagers, the many ups and downs they've weathered together, famously suing their record company while working on Damn the Torpedoes, a 1987 arson fire that destroyed Petty's Encino home, Petty's loyalty-testing recordings apart from the band, and the 2003 death of bassist Howie Epstein forged a band of brothers bond that Petty clearly prized. Petty goes on to explain in his interview with Lewis, The thing about the Heartbreakers is, it's still holy to me, he said with no air of loftiness or pretense. There's a holiness there. If that were to go away, I don't think I would be interested in it. And I don't think they would. We're a real rock and roll band, always have been. And to us, in the era we came up in, it was a religion in a way. It was more than commerce. It wasn't about that. It was about something much greater. It was about moving people and changing the world. And I really believed in rock and roll. I still do, he said. I believed in it in its purest sense, its purest form. It's unique to have a band that knows each other that long and that well. I'm just trying to get the best I can out of it, said Tom Petty, head heartbreaker, as long as it remains holy. So, Willen, um, so I think that we both agree, I could be wrong, but I think we both agree that uh, the Tom Petty version of Willen is like the deepest, the most patient, you know. Um, I had a hiccup earlier this afternoon, must have been on PCP, <laughs> but, yeah. but but I think I'm right now. I, I, I think my mind is right now. I hope so, because um, I was concerned. Yeah. Concerned, um, Jack. Maybe I was just looking for attention. <laughs> I don't know. So, Filler, you texted me saying that the Mandy Moore version was your favorite, and I mm-hmm. was like, "Wait a second, dude." I don't know what to say. So, listen, we didn't. I didn't mention um, in my reading. We talked about um, the Little Feet, the original, right? And then mm-hmm. Tom Petty's cover, mm-hmm. um, which he first did at the Beacon Theater in 2013. Mm-hmm. Cool. But um, thanks to you, I fell down a Greg Allman rabbit hole. Jenny and Filler were, you guys were like the last people on my porch over the summer, and you played Multicolored Lady. Yeah. I got to give a shout out to Bassman on this one. Okay. He's, Kato he's, Caitlin. That yeah, song is that's dope. right. Bassman, Euclid Ave, because he put me on Holla. to this record. 
And there's like a bunch of great songs on that record, but Multicolor Ladies like one of the top three. Yeah, so good. So right. when you pl- when you play that for me, I instantly with like in the first few seconds of the song, I loved it. And um, I then fell down a Greg Allman rabbit hole, which led me to Southern Blood, mm-hmm. which was the last album he recorded before he died. And I heard, I was listening to the album, you know, um, side A and side B, nonstop for a couple days, and Willen, he does this version of Willen. And of course, I, being, you know, late to the Greg Allman game and party, whatnot, and, you know, very naive, um, I assumed it was his, you know, original version. And then a couple of days later, um, I was listening to the radio, and this dude from 104.3, the classic rock station, played Tom Petty's version, the live mm. version from Fonda Theater out in um, L.A. And I was like, wait a second. So Greg Allman's covering Tom Petty, and then that's where I discovered right. that it was the Little Feet. So thank you for getting me down this rabbit hole. It was, it, it was a happy mistake. It was a happy mistake, and I love that rabbit hole. Which, by the way, I've got to talk about, since we're talking about rabbit holes... And I don't know if you know this about me, Jenny, but I have a tattoo. A tattoo? I have a tattoo of, um, you probably don't know this either, of um, Alice in Alice from Alice in Wonderland. Um, And um, Lord knows why I got it. Obviously, you know, had a good time in college. Right. uh, Neither here nor there. But the video for. The video for Tom Petty's Don't Come Around Here No More. Do you guys remember that video? Oh, yeah. my God. And I just remember being a little kid watching that video, slightly scared, slightly just enchanted, and super, super hooked on it. And that was really my first intro to Tom, Tom Petty. So what's interesting to me is that, you know, Lowell George has a really interesting, a very short life. I mean, he died in 1979. He was so 34. It's crazy, right? Right. So this song came out um, in, what, he wrote it in 71, and you were telling the story earlier before we got on the air about how um, when they went into the recording studio, he had burned his hand. Um, and some like weird fucking weirdo model, model. airplane uh, an engine on a model airplane that yeah. doesn't make any sense to me I, I don't really know these rock stars engines, but whatever his hand is burned he can't play that's right he can't play slide guitar and that's what he was known for being so prolific at and sort of uh, um, pioneering certain techniques in that way that hadn't hadn't been right right. Um, right on so what's interesting about um, Tom Petty was that he um, he grew up in Florida and he was actually in a lot of like film and weird, you know, sort of um, movie scenes and TV scenes and stuff like that. And when he was 10, this is how he got into music. He um, was lucky enough to be in Ocala, Florida or some someplace like that. I might not be pronouncing that correctly. And Elvis Presley was filming a movie there. And he went on to the set. His uncle worked for, for the film um, industry and he got to meet Elvis Presley. Cool. And for him that was like his, you know, aha like, oh, I want to be I want to be that. And after he met Elvis Presley, the Beatles were on um, the Ed Sullivan show. And when he saw the Beatles, he was like, this is something I could do. This is something my friends and I could actually mm. do and we could we could we could do this. And that's how all of these garage bands in the, you know, uh, early 60s and and 50s sort of started. Um and so I thought that was very interesting. It was accessible, yeah. It's accessible, yeah. Well, that's the best thing about like rock and roll, is that like it always seems within grasp for a young person. That's how you know kids just like I can pick that up. I can figure this out. I can figure out these few chords. I can get somebody that has a drum set into my garage. Mm-hmm. We can set this up. We can do this. That's so cool. I never, yeah. you know, that was not a thought to me. 
I was right. just a pure listener and enthusiast. Right. I never had that. It didn't go for me like, oh, I could do, you know, I could start a band. I never really had that that thought. But that's interesting. Block. A lot of howling nonsense would be avoided if, in every sentence containing the word writer, the word was taken out and the word plumber substituted. Do plumbers get plumber's block? What would you think of a plumber who used that as an excuse not to do any work that day? The fact is that writing is hard work, and sometimes you don't want to do it, and you can't think of what to write next, and you're fed up with the whole damn business. Do you think plumbers don't feel like that about their work from time to time? Of course, there will be days when the stuff is not flowing freely. What you do then is make it up. I like the reply of the composer Shostakovich to a student who complained that he couldn't find a theme for his second movement. Never mind the theme. Just write the movement, he said. Writer's block is a condition that affects amateurs and people who aren't serious about writing. So is the opposite, namely inspiration, which amateurs are also very fond of. Putting it another way, a professional writer is someone who writes just as well when they're not inspired as when they are, laments author Philip Pullman. If you want to be happy, find something you're good at and make it your life, whether it's being a train driver, architect, or whatever. There's a lot to be said for being an expert at something. Guitarist Johnny Marr of The Smiths. The Smiths were an English rock band formed in Manchester in 1982. The band consisted of vocalist Morrissey, guitarist Johnny Marr, bassist Andy Rourke, and drummer Mike Joyce. In 1982, Marr was an 18-year-old clothing shop assistant looking for a singer to form a band. On suggestion of a mutual friend, he sought out the elusive and reclusive Stratford poet Stephen Patrick, otherwise known as Morrissey. He knocked on his front door and suggested they form a band. As a fan of the New York Dolls, Marr had been impressed that Morrissey had authored a book on the band and was inspired to turn up on his doorstep following the example of Jerry Lieber, who had formed his working partnership with Mike Stoller after turning up at his doorstep. The two were instantly enthralled with each other, and on their second meeting, they planned the Smiths in great detail. They planned the label they would sign to, Rough Trade, the record sleeve designs, and even the color of the label on their debut single. Everything came to fruition. Morrissey and Marr held their first rehearsal in Marr's rented attic room in Bowdoin. The first song they worked on was The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which was based on lyrics produced by Morrissey. Marr included a tempo that was based on Patti Smith's song, Kimberly, and they recorded it on Marr's TAC three-track cassette recorder. By the end of the summer of 1982, Morrissey had chosen the band name The Smiths, later saying that it was the most ordinary name and I thought it was time that the ordinary folk of the world show their faces. Marr was a prolific guitarist, songwriter, and insomniac. He'd stay up all night writing and recording his guitar orchestrations. His style assimilated Motown, Chic, The Hollies, Mark Boland, and much, much more. He went out of his way to play nothing even remotely conventional, while still striving for melody and familiarity. Musically, the sound of the Smiths was a palpably bright sheen of layered guitars, nostalgically familiar, yet equally dumbfounding in its pristine newness. 
The songs were big and urgent, but bent together with nimble flair, while Morrissey's unconventional rock croon floated effortlessly over Mars' meticulously sculpted melodic instrumentals, a juxtaposition of execution and content, ungrounded and floating with ease, carelessly, with the words that cared too much and a sense of humor that cleverly took shots at one's own world of easy melancholia. Marr and Morrissey formed the Smiths as a songwriting partnership in the great brill-building tradition of Lieber and Stahler. His ambition, first and foremost, was to write great music. As a composer, Marr's greatest Smiths triumphs were those which weakened the knees with melancholic splendor, half a person, oscillate wildly, last night I dreamt that somebody loved me, and their most celebrated, there is a light that never goes out. As a player, Mars' greatest achievements were those which smacked the gob with their sonic ingenuity. The shuddering, how soon is now, the devil's jig of Big Mouth Strikes Again, and the wah-wah storming of The Queen is Dead. By the time the Smiths disbanded in 1987, they'd made four classic albums. 1984's The Smiths, 1985's Meat is Murder, 1986's The Queen is Dead, and 1987's Strange Ways, Here We Come, in addition to 17 singles. One of those singles, the epic William, It Was Really Nothing, released in 1984, was accompanied by a B-side entitled Please, 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 Let Me Get What I Want. Good times for a change. See, the luck I've had can make a good man turn bad. One of their early cult successes in America, reaching a new high school audience when Ducky moped to it in Pretty in Pink, Please, Please, Please is Mars' acoustic Celtic waltz, complete with mandolins at the end, reflecting the Irish immigrant heritage of all four band members. As for Morrissey, it's a classic he kept rewriting his whole life, from I Know It's Gonna Happen Someday, to My Love Life, to Now My Heart Is Full. In the years that followed, it became one of the most well-known Smith songs and has been covered by numerous other artists. Maybe the best-known cover is an instrumental version by the Dream Academy, made famous in the Art Museum montage in John Hughes' Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The three main characters of the film, Ferris Bueller, Sloan Peterson, and Cameron Fry, go into the museum together and look at several paintings. At the conclusion of the scene, Cameron ends up staring at a particular painting focusing on a woman and her daughter. There are several back-and-forth shots of Cameron looking deeper and deeper into the painting. Each time Cameron looks, the camera zooms farther and farther into the painting, so that eventually the viewer can only see a blur of color and the impressionistic contour of brushstrokes. The Dream Academy was known for incorporating orchestral instrumentation into their brand of 1980s pop music, woodwinds, strings, timpani, and so forth. What is striking about their cover is how well the instrumentation lends itself to Johnny Marr's original composition, bringing to light the understanding that Marr was far more than a traditional guitarist writing guitar music. He was a composer thinking well outside of the parameters of two-chord rock, yet he had the eloquent and rare sensibility to venture just far enough to achieve originality while remaining close enough to connect with the common listener, to straddle that fragile line of uniqueness and accessibility. That is how the Smiths played, how they thought, how they dressed, how they looked. Their music was everybody's music, whereas previous generations often put themselves above the listener and created an image of detachment, false masculinity, or condescending entitlement. 
As Morrissey said of the Smiths, again, it was the most ordinary name, and I thought that it was time that the ordinary folk of the world showed their faces. Respect for one's craft. Johnny said it on the onset. Find something that you're good at and make it your life, whether it's being a train driver, architect, or whatever. There's a lot to be said for being an expert at something. The Smiths only existed for five years as a unit, but their aversion to bullshit, their prolific nature, and their sheer drive and determination left us a transcendent book of music, a blueprint for focus, work ethic, sincerity, and truth. Johnny Marr was 23 years old when the Smiths disbanded, already a lifetime under his belt, and a lifetime ahead. Ahoy polloi. Ahoy polloi, yes. <laughs> it's Groundhog's Day. Holla! <laughs> I had to get that out. I'll tell you where we start. Okay. We start when I was in sixth grade, and I was walking down the stairs in school, and I couldn't stop singing Girlfriend in a Coma. Right. And 106.3 was the, the, you know, your sister, Rennie. Yeah, you know, it was, we, rock, it was, it was the best. Sure. But it was the how, best. it was my, it was what made me cooler than the people I knew that didn't live around here because right. I turned them on to so many bands. And my sister, Rennie, she had a Honda Civic. And I think she bought it from your dad. I'm sure. To be hey, honest. Hello. It was her first car. She was 17. And she's driving me around. Uh, you know, I'm like 11 or 12. And she's playing 106.3 all the time, and the Smiths are just on that. Yeah, yeah. They're on it, and it's cool, and I'm in my older sister's car, yep. and it's cool. And I'm also really into music, and I don't know it yet that I'm going to do music with my life. You, you know, I, I don't know that yet, but I know that I'm sensitive to that. Yeah. And it just was this... The Smiths were just this other sound. They this, were this yeah, other sound. They were this other sound. It's like this little jingle jangle in your ear mm-hmm. that's just so calming and, and comfortable, and you know it, but you don't know it. And right. I feel like the people... It's really familiar. Yeah. But you've never heard it that's before. It. That's it. How do you do that? Ah, fuck if I it's know. It's lightning man. in a bottle. It's lightning in a bottle. I tell you, and there's some people out there that don't like the Smiths, right? They're, they're very strong and quick to say, "Ah, That's I fine. don't like the Smiths." That's that fine. Is, that is fine. I'm not. I'm not trying to yeah. convert anyone, but I feel like you big dummy. Like you're just, you know what I mean? You're no, just not. You're but just like not divisiveness listening. Divisiveness is like the sign of something coming from a sincere place, though. Too, right? Yeah, your reading of. Mentioning Ferris Bueller and the fact that the cover of that version is in Ferris Bueller is very interesting, right? Um, to me, yeah. Uh, you know, as a kid, um, I knew the Smiths because of my sister Rennie, but I, I always noticed the similarity between the two. Yeah, and I didn't put uh, two and two together. But I mean, later. that's so yeah. Cameron's like theme song, you know, yeah. right throughout the whole movie. That's like the essence of Cameron in that. Cameron, if there was a sequel. Cameron was going to only come into his own sure. as as a uh, as a college man yeah. and and uh, and uh, an yeah. Adult. I mean, he probably. I mean, if anything, like Ferris was going to become less cool. Right. That's how it would be. Right. That's how it That's works. How it works right. And I love Ferris. I wanted that vest. Ferris. Well, Tom Petty wore the vest. 
Um, so when we were dancing um, out in the living room last week, um, I played you guys that Jeff Buckley cover, mm-hmm. um, and I just wanted to read you, um, you know, a little blurb about it. And it's it's his cover of "I Know It's Over," right. um, and it says, "No list of Smith covers could be complete without Jeff Buckley, famously lauding the group the late Troubadour turned "I Know It's Over" into a concert staple." Using Mars' simple, delicate arrangement as a framework, Buckley painted generous vocal renderings on top, a testament to Morrissey's ability as a vocalist. Buckley's octave-soaring abilities are reined in to focus on pure feeling. And I think, I guess that's what, you know, cover story and and what we're talking about, these cover songs and his cover of it, um, it's really beautiful, but he, he sort of, he takes what Morrissey did so well, the vocals, you know, right. and he's able to bring his own sort of story to it, um, which he did with Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Do you, you know that song? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. The cover is amazing. Um, there aren't too many Smith cover, like covers of Smith songs that I really appreciate, but I do like that one. It's very hard to cover the Smiths. Yeah. Um, it, it's very hard to sing like Morrissey. Mm-hmm. It's very but, hard to play guitar like Johnny Marr. And that's why that Jeff Buckley cover is beautiful, because it's like he's... It sounds like the Smiths, but it's Jeff Buckley singing. It's, it's, right. really, it's really beautiful. Absolutely. It's really beautiful. So Johnny Marr, you know, back to um, how we were talking about Tom Petty and what sort of got him into being into rock and roll was when he first met Elvis Presley. I want to get that book that you let me borrow. Mm-hmm. Um um, autobiography and thank you for lending it to me I'm almost done um, but it was published when did he publish this um, two years ago maybe. yeah 2016 okay um, there we have it um, it's and fresh it's new what I love which is so similar to um, if you read Malcolm Gladwell's um, The Turning Point I have or, it's fascinating Actually, right I have, I've, I'm part of me part of me books, yeah. it's not The Turning Point it's Outliers yes um, Outliers so, was the first one I read okay so Outliers so this so Right on, yeah. Right? So I didn't actually read Outliers. I listened to it when I was commuting um, on, like, audiobook, um, which is something I don't normally do. But what struck me about the the little red thread that's connecting this episode, which I love, um, with Tom Petty and Johnny Marr and the Smiths and the Heartbreakers, is um, sort of the, the the point where you were like, yeah, that's what that that's what I want to do or that's what I like and for you driving right. around in Rennie's car listening to music you knew it was sort of you right. know overcoming you but you didn't know how much you were going to absorb it Interesting. so he's so his first chapter of this book which I love it's so simple and it's outliers right and, and you, you, you got it I know it well yeah. it's called Emily's chapter one I stood outside gazing up on one of those mornings when the sun scorched the pavement and the and Mancunians used to say it's cracked the flags. It was summer 1968. I was nearly five years old, so just our, you know, my boy's age, right? Which is right. crazy. Nuts. Okay. And every day we would walk past Emily's corner shop, and my mother would have to stop and wait while I stared up intently through the window at the little wooden guitar leaning on the shelf between the mops, buckets, and brooms. My mother had got used to having to stop at Emily's, and she and my father had wondered about their son being so taken with a toy guitar. It was always the same. We'd stand outside the shop while I gazed up until that morning when my mother took me inside and gave me the money for it to Emily, who took the guitar down from the shelf and handed it to me. From that moment, I got my first guitar. I had it with me wherever I went, carrying it around the way other kids carried their toy fire engines and dolls. I don't know why I had to have it, but I was besotted with it. And from then on, I can't remember a time when I didn't have a guitar. 
And that just really right. struck me. The kid is only five years. This is Johnny Marr, only yes, five years old. Of memory. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. beautiful. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Outliers, the Smiths, they're outliers. You know, doing doing what you love in life for your life is a childlike sensation every day. Yes. Right. That's beautifully said in that. Thank you. Yeah. Cheers. Love is natural and real. But not for you, Okay, so you said you wanted to hear gin and juice for the podcast? Thank you for spending Groundhog's Day with us. And I'll tell you something about this goddamn town. This is pitiful. A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat? What a hype. Groundhog Day used to mean something in this town. They used to pull the hog out and they used to eat it. You're hypocrites, all of you. Thank you for listening to the cover story. We hope you enjoyed episode seven. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. We look forward to taking you with us on our journey to London next week, where we dive into one of the most ambitious covers of a band that pioneered the next generation of rock and roll. Until next time, look out streets. Here we come. But I just can't get no relief